Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Another way to support the podcast is by switching to Brave. When was the last time you seriously thought about your browser? Many of us downloaded Chrome or used Safari without even thinking, but it's time to upgrade to something better. With other browsers, ads and trackers follow your every move and slow down your loading speeds. The Brave browser is three times faster than Chrome because it takes Chrome's engine and rips out all the trackers and spyware. So it works just like Chrome, except cleaner and faster. By using Brave, you protect yourself from surveillance. Many popular sites have over 100 trackers, and these trackers can collect your inferred sexual orientation, political views, religious beliefs, even your location, sometimes right up to your exact GPS coordinates. Brave is a privacy-focused browser that blocks all of this out of the box. It also blocks all those annoying banner ads and those commercials on YouTube. Brave even shows you how many ads and trackers you've blocked in your lifetime, and how much data and time you've saved by doing so. It's really satisfying. Switching to Brave is also super easy and quick. You can import your bookmarks, history, and replicate your entire workspace in Brave in less than 60 seconds. It's free, and all your Chrome extensions work in Brave. So listeners of the podcast, switch to Brave today. All you have to do is go to brave.com slash and switch over. By downloading and using Brave, you're also helping support the Likeville podcast. Brave is available for your laptop, iOS, and Android. It's time to upgrade to a new browser. Be ahead of the curve. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, uh, we'll be talking again with uh, Professor Nicholas Christakis, a sociologist and medical doctor, about uh, his new book, Apollo's Arrow, which is all about um, the coronavirus and how we got here and how it compares to previous ones and what we need to do and what is going to happen in the future. And um, also today we'll be uh, joined by Professor Daniel Weinstock, uh, philosopher from McGill's Law School. Welcome, Daniel. Welcome, Nicholas. Good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So I'm just going to jump right in. This is a big book. It's a wonderful book. Um, it's I've been teaching on Blueprint, your last book, and it, it's fantastic. This one is going to be just as good. I've I've basically given people, students, excerpts from it because it just came out. But uh, um, one question that I want to get right into is you say um, near the end of the book, you talk about how this may be an opportunity uh, the COVID, uh, COVID-19, okay, I'll just read you the thing rather than because really our listeners need to hear this. So uh, you write near the end of the book, uh, the pandemic may possibly reverse certain political and cultural trends that have, in my view, bedeviled our society in recent years. Uh, early in the pandemic, I became worried that the thinning out of our intellectual life over the past 20 years would pose barriers for managing the spread of the virus, let me go on and on and on. And then um, despite all this, I think that one of the unexpected impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic 
may be that a society that feels besieged by the threat of the virus will increasingly treat scientific information and not just scientists seriously. Um, this I found absolutely fascinating, Nicholas. So uh, could you sort of expand on that a little bit? Yes. I mean, of course, it's very tempting to, at any given stage, you know, to think that the situation that you're observing is unique in history. And so I want to be careful to be properly uh, reserved. You know, there's this very funny story about how Plato, I think in the Republic, writes about, you know, kids these days. They don't listen to their elders. You know, they're they're rude and disrespectful. You know, they're in a hurry and so on. And that's, you know, conflating you know, epoch with just developmental change. So yes, I do think there's some been some the virus, this particular virus, our time in the crucible with this pandemic, with this plague, you know, people have been dealing with plagues for thousands of years, and it's our turn. But the virus has struck us at a particular moment of vulnerability in the way that that you summarize it. And let me just say a couple words about that. I think there has been in the last 10 to 30 years, a kind of thinning out of the intellectual life of our society in several ways. One is a kind of way in which science is seen as, as, as suspect and a kind of inability to, or a, or, a, or a scientific, a lack of scientific education on the part of the public. I forgot the exact numbers, but in the United States, you know, half of Americans, for example, uh, across a range of opinions have really factually wrong information. I, I think literally like a quarter of Americans still think the, 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 the sun rotates around the earth or something. Or Yeah, you mentioned yeah. it in that passage. You say scientific literacy is low among the general public. A total of 38% of Americans believe that God created humans in their present form sometime in the last 10,000 years. 25% believe the sun revolves around the earth. 61% cannot correctly identify that the universe began with the Big Bang, uh, and so on and so yeah. forth. Yeah, it's really so, wild. So there's a lack of baseline appreciation of science and scientific knowledge. There's also a sense in which, given the kind of ascendant anti-elitism in our society, and this, you know, this comes waxes and wanes generationally. You know, we are in fact at a century-wide peak in economic inequality in our society, and I think that goes hand in glove with a kind of resentment of elites. And this also has certain political aspects as well. But, but the, the weird part about it is this anti-elitism is also manifesting itself as an anti-expertise where people think that experts are elites, which they're not. You know, when you have a flood in your basement, it's an emergency for you, but it's the everyday work for your plumber. And your plumber has expertise, and that's why you want that. You you want to be able to 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 ask that person with expertise to come and solve your problem. And of course, the same goes when you need a car mechanic or a or a master carpenter or a surgeon, um, or I would argue someone that is familiar with climate change or pandemic management. I mean, Tony Fauci was writing about respiratory pandemics when I was in elementary school. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's. <laughs> No, I'm serious. And this idea that, you know, these people, this, and, and, and I forgot the name. There's a, a, a right-wing political commentator who I like. I'm blocking his name right now. Wrote this piece about how there, there's always kind of a resentment and suspicion of, of, um, of elites. But, uh, but right now there's this, there's this extra feature where the person on the street thinks they're smarter, you know, or more capable or more equally knowledgeable as this, 
these experts. And, and there's something odd about that, this kind of a presumption even, or, or even a narcissism. I mean, you know, I, I, there are many, many things I know very little about. And I, I'm, although I'm entitled to have opinions about them, I would never presume to, to think that, you know, I was just as good a musician as, uh, you know, as Keith Jarrett. I mean, you know, just, it's, I, I can't even, I'm tone deaf. I mean, you know, this is absurd. So, okay, so there's, so there's this thinning out of our intellectual culture in part because of a kind of lack of scientific understanding, in part because of a kind of anti-elitism. Another component is the kind of political polarization in our society where we, do, we are having a generational high, maybe even a century-long high in um, political polarization. And things are seen, you know, as um, politically very fraught and you know, they're either, you're either on the right or the left, and the center has sort of collapsed in some ways. And this has been documented by political scientists in a number of ways, and this makes it very difficult for us because things like masks, which should be seen not as uh, symbols of virtue and neighborliness, nor as symbols of liberty and independence, but rather as just a, a technology that we use to stop respiratory droplets. You know, it's got... Other countries haven't politicized mask wearing, you know, but we have in the United States. So, so there's this problem. And finally, and perhaps most important, is the fact that we seem as a society to have lost the capacity for nuance. Things are seen as black or white. You're either with us or you're against us. And this is preposterous. I mean, most adults recognize that life is complicated and things are not so simple. And, you know, that there are costs and benefits and a range of options with any dilemma in life. And this applies not just with respect to the managing the pandemic, but with a host of topics that have become, you know, very difficult to discuss in any kind of nuanced way. Um, And so the virus struck us, in my view, when we were especially weak. We have this thinned out, this, this relatively reduced ability to speak in a mature, grown-up, sober-minded way about our predicament. And the virus, as a result, is, 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 has an incredible tailwind. You know, it's just having a field day with us. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, do you think to some extent, I mean, you, you do talk about this in your book, and number of you talk about how it was a mistake, for instance, for medical um, officials to greenlight all the BLM protests when they didn't know if they were going to be dangerous or not, and uh, and, and things like that. But I, I wonder if to some well, but that, extent, even that the, even that was an example because it was a very good example of politicization where people's politics interfered with their ability to like make a sober-minded assessment, and also in my view, a kind of lack of nuance that it was seen as like if you if you were to raise concerns. Uh, about the potential, you know, danger in 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 having mass gatherings. Somehow, you were then seen as, oh, you're with us or you're against us, as opposing, as a as opposing, uh, as supporting. You were seen as supporting police brutality or opposing racial equality, which is of course ridiculous. Um, so yes, that, I mean that was another very difficult moment uh, with respect to how we talk about difficult topics in our society. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You were you were raised. Yeah, no. Well, I just, I just, I, you know, I mentioned this to Daniel earlier on today when we were talking. But we had uh, my wife and I. We had our first kid in Baltimore when we were at Hopkins, and then we had our second kid up here in Montreal. And so, it, and this was, you know, within, you know, 13 months of each other. So it's not as if the literature changed. 
dramatically in a short amount of time. But in Maryland, we were told that um, if you have absolutely any alcohol during pregnancy, this is, puts you at risk for fetal alcohol. Yes. Syndrome, right. And then we came up here and the, the very same, you know, doctors that have been trained at the same universities and are reading all the same literature. Uh, they told us here, the Quebec government literature said it's totally fine to have a glass of wine with dinner. Um, when you're pregnant, uh, you know, don't, don't go over that, but a glass of wine is totally fine. And so we were, we went into this deep dive to try and why is there a discrepancy between what the health authorities are saying in the United States and what they're saying in, uh, in Canada. And as it turns out, what we, when we got to the bottom of it, it's that the health authorities in the, they were sort of counting on the fact that Americans are stupid and that if you give them an inch, they're going to take a mile. And so you need to sort of calibrate. If you tell them they can have one, they're going to have a bottle. Uh, so tell them they're going to, they can have none and they'll have one. And I wonder if, you know, if this kind of calculation doesn't ultimately undermine trust in the medical authorities, if you know, if you know what I mean. Yes, I do. And I mean, I think that is a, that's a good example. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons. I don't think that's the only reason, but I do think that's one possible reason that the messaging was around alcohol consumption in the United States has been that way. Um, another reason has to do with the distribution where it's where the average effect of drinking is estimated to be whatever it is, but in fact, it's being driven by the tail of the distribution, by the heavy, heavy drinkers. And so, in fact, the Canadian messaging was scientifically accurate, but the Americans were relying on a different way of summarizing the data. So, uh, so, so yes, I mean, I think that uh, th- that is part of the problem. And I also think is we're going to have to get better at this and, ed- and speak more honestly to people and share with them the uncertainty and the range of options and what is and isn't known. So as, so that scientists don't lose credibility in the time of, in the time of the pandemic. You know, I think for example, when the vaccines are, begin to be rolled out in millions of people, we might or might not have some safety problems with the vaccines. I do not think we do the public any favors by telling them there's no evidence of safety problems now when perhaps we're a little worried about that. I think we do much better if we say, look, we, um, we are a little worried about the safety problems, but we don't see any evidence yet. And so far, you know, 43,000 people in the Pfizer trial and 30,000 people in the Moderna trial have had some variant of an mRNA vaccine. And among those, you know, 75,000 people, we didn't see any problems. And we've also been using these mRNA vaccines never before in humans, but we have been using them in animals and we haven't seen problems there and blah, blah, blah. And here's the biology. And here's why we think there's unlikely to be a problem. But the moment we see evidence of it, we'll be right back at you. I think that a variant of that is a much better strategy than trying to, because we because we as experts have decided that regardless of any safety problems, it is in fact better for the public to be widely vaccinated, which is, which is almost certainly true, that we're not going to level with the American or Canadian people. So I agree with you. I think that it's better to, to try. But to do that, you see, you need trusted figures. You need patient and consistent and longstanding public education. You need good messaging. You know, you need to, you need to make the effort to bring people along with you. And 
And they have to want to hear it as well, right? Remember this thinning out, this sort of simplification, people want to say, well, is the vaccine safe or not? And the answer is no, we need nuance. It's, you know, it's not so simple, you know, so the public yeah. has to be, do their part. Oh, I mean, you, yeah, well, I, I, yes, Daniel. Yeah, I, 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 I jump in here. It's sort of really interesting. I, I very much share uh, the sense that uh, we'd have a much healthier relationship between uh, uh, science and the scientific establishment and, and the population if, uh, you know, the uncertainty that is just uh, inherent to the scientific enterprise, and which indeed allows the scientific enterprise to, to go on, were sort of, were, were made clear to the population. But I think the population, you know, we're a couple of steps from being able uh, to get to that point of a healthy uh, relationship. Th- I think back to the way in which, I don't know whether the same uh, happened in the United States, but in the early days of the response here in Quebec, uh, our uh, version of uh, Dr. Fauci, uh, our director of, um, of public health, uh, was very skeptical, skeptical about masks. Um, and basically, you know, the, the idea was that uh, washing your hands, absolutely, respiratory hygiene, coughing into your elbow, uh, distancing, of course, um, and you know when when we we need to flatten the curve, all of the sort of restrictions on uh, on um, on gatherings uh, were were clearly were clearly top of uh, top of the agenda. But he was quite uh, skeptical about masks, and probably remained skeptical a little bit later than uh, the sort of norm in other uh, parts of the world uh, was about masks. Now, when he finally came on board. He did do a fairly good job of saying, "Look, you know, I was wrong. You know, I th- this was the evidence, and these were the concerns. And uh, now I realize that uh, you know the case is just overwhelmingly uh, on the other side." And that was met uh, with, um, you know, uh, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, how can we trust this guy? Uh, what? How do we have any confidence that what he's telling us now is any more um, trustworthy than what he told us a week ago? So but did that did that happen? Even though he said, "Look, I was wrong," and here are the reasons I was wrong. Because usually that's seen as credibility enhancing. Like here's a guy who you know is consistent and so on. But did that not happen? I mean, I don't think he went into the into the level of detail. You know, I mean, the, the there's a, there's a time constraint on the uh, types of communications that these people can. Uh, you know, uh, he, he's got a couple of minutes every day at the at the government press conference. Um, uh, so I don't know that he went into um, you know the kind of the kind of explanation for why he changed mind uh, would have dotted all the i's and crossed all the t's. But I think he did, uh, you know, make a clean breast of saying, um, you know, this really was, uh, you know, ev- evidence on this question sort of evolves, um, and on the basis of the evolving evidence, I've changed my mind. I now think that it's clearly the case that we ought to do X, whereas I'd said uh, not X uh, just a few uh, weeks ago. Now, I would love to live in a society where that is met with the reaction that you just described, uh, you know, in, in fact, to enhance trust rather than um, uh, the opposite. Look, these people are actually sensitive to the evolution of uh, data as it comes in. That makes me a lot you know, more uh, likely to accept what they're saying. But it did have this kind of dampening as if uh, there was something you talk about. I mean, I, I don't want to bring too many things together. You know, one of the things that you talk about, which I thought was really interesting in the book, is fear, right? The, the, the kind of ambient fear that is never terror, but kind of the atmosphere that we're now bathing in for months and months and months. I wonder whether fear doesn't make the population... Um, you know, we really need to be able to entrust ourselves to somebody who is who has certainties, and the scientific enterprise is about uh, 
uh, doubt and about, uh, you know, moving forward on the basis of, uh, you know, sort of pointing the scientific compass in the direction that doubt suggests. So I, I wonder whether you, uh, whether there's something about fear, the kind of uh, am- atmosphere of fear that we're based yes. that might make people well, less receptive to that kind of... Uh, yes. yes, I mean, I, as I discuss in the book, obviously, and, you know, there's there are these emotional responses when... Um, when there are deadly epidemics that uh, have been a part of the human experience, you know, for thousands of years when it comes to times of plagues, fear is one of them, grief, you know, sadness, uh, anger, uh, 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 lies, you know, mendacity and denial, uh, blame, you know, blaming other groups. These are all things that are seen and that have been seen, as I said, for hundreds of years and, and that are being seen now. And, you know, we are not the first ones to respond in a fearful way to what's happening with superstition and with uh, blaming others and with not taking in information. So you're right to highlight that. And one of the kind of ways I sort of ways I try to cultivate this sort of uh, metaphor is that, you know, plague was one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And uh, you could think of fear and lies as being it's squires, you know, like following right behind, uh, you know, trailing the germ are these other phenomena. But see, here's the thing I'd like to point out. It's a bit of a tangent to your point, but when when the pathogen is afoot and fear and and lies are ascendant, in a way, it's almost the perfection of our democracy, at least in the United States, where if, if the people want to vote for leaders who will lie to them, we can do that and we can get leaders who lie to us. And in fact, that is what we've had in the United States for the last, you know, since we've been coping with this pandemic. We've, we, but, that, but that doesn't mean we can't hold the leaders responsible. The job of leadership is, in fact, to help people see the circumstance for what it is, not to, you know, whistle while or whatever the expression is, you know, uh, I forgot what the expression is, while the boat is sinking, you know, when you do something pointless. Rearrange so, the deck furniture. Yes, that's right. I was going to combine the whistling by the graveyard <laughs> With the, uh, yeah. <laughs> rearranging the deck for deck chairs on the in the graveyard, or whistling while the boat is burning, but any, or sinking. But anyway, the point is this: this fear, which is typical, must, in in my view, one of the roles of leadership, whether it's lo- local officials, national officials, public health people, your doctors, whatever it is, is to push back on it and help people to cope. It's very human. It's very understandable. I understand it but it doesn't help us in this situation. Yeah. I went down a rabbit hole a couple months ago. I, I, I listened to Dan Carlin's hardcore history podcast and he, he was, he ended up talking about FDR and his fireside chats and he played some clips from them. And I was just so completely entranced by yes. them. That I went online and, and I found them and I listened to them and I just, I couldn't help but draw parallels. It's like, it, he was so good at just really calmly and not in a condescending way at all, but explaining some pretty complicated ideas to the American people. And he, he didn't dumb them down. He really sort of like, but they're yes. explained in a way that anybody. And I think if Biden yes. could, could do the equivalent yes. of fireside chats about COVID-19. Yes. It would be wonderful. Yeah. I, I think that's exactly right. And in fact, somewhere else I, 
not in the book. I talked about exactly that analogy of the fireside chats, and it involves, as you, you said, you mentioned it. You mentioned it on Sam Harris or Rogan. I okay, all one. right, I can't remember yeah. where, but that's exactly right. And I think that it's it's a combination of um, educating your audience, being honest with your audience, treating them with respect, and also calling your audience to service. Right? I mean, I think this idea that our leaders are telling us we can have our cake and eat it too. No, we cannot. We cannot. There's a deadly germ, unfortunately, that's been released, and it's a, and it's afoot. And and the when when this happens, economies tend to collapse and people tend to die, regardless of what the government does. This economic collapse, just to be clear, is not because of what the government is doing. It's because of the germ. And so we need to um, we need to grow up and accept and and confront as adults this this challenge, uh, which is an age old challenge, you know. And so. So I think that kind of an effort and, and, and a kind of call to service, which I think the American people, and I think Canadians too, would respond to, a call to maturity, uh, a kind of patient and honest education about what is the nature of the threat we're facing, uh, an invocation to avoid you know, blaming others or, 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 or becoming split up, you know, a kind of invocation to common purpose. These are all basic leadership, and I think they're absolutely required. You know, in Blueprint, the book you mentioned, the other one I did, I, I had opportunity to study a little bit about how Shackleton led his group during the time, you know, admittedly a smaller group, very different challenge. But you see these cases of leadership and you're like, ah, that's how it's done, you know? So, uh, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's what we need, just like you're saying, like FDR, you know, during the war. Yeah, there's uh, a whole bunch of questions here from listeners and stuff like that. But one of them is uh, saying basically – you know that you talk a little bit about, and obviously you can't talk about everything, but you talk a little bit about how the pandemic is changing the way that we love each other, and it's changing uh, romance, it's cha- changing friendships, and uh, and you Temp- sort of say that maybe, maybe some- temporarily making those changes, but yes, go on. Okay, so do you think? Well, first of all, maybe just tell our listeners what do you think those changes look like they are and do you think any of them are are going to be permanent no because as you know i mean i'm very committed to the notion that there's a fundamental evolutionarily shaped uh nature to human social interactions you know our propensity to love our partners and have friendships and cooperate with strangers and have mild hierarchy and make social networks and engage in social learning and all of that stuff you know I think has been shaped by evolution and is an innate quality of human beings. However, you know, uh, that doesn't mean that uh, there can't be uh, exigencies like <laughs> pandemics that temporarily reshape how we interact. And on the, on the love example, uh, you know, times of stress, which incidentally don't just include pandemics, but can include hurricanes or earthquakes or other kinds of calamities. Um, I think in some ways can be seen as relationship accelerators. Um, you know, I think there are ways in which um, when one has the heightened sense of, of uh, anxiety because of the danger that's lurking afoot, this affects, you know, this is a trope in movies, you know, when the teenagers, you know, when the earth is about to end and the teenagers have sex or whatever, you know, at the summer, yeah. and, you know, but, um, but I think there is some truth to that in the sense of how people, you know, how they search for intimacy when they feel afraid. Um, and I do discuss that a little bit in Apollo's Arrow. And on friendship, you know, I think one of the ironies about the pandemic is that it is forcing us, the, the, the response to the pandemic 
is is naturally we get a we people naturally even before the nature of communicable disease was understood and even before there were governments which ordered businesses or schools closed people avoided each other when there was a deadly contagion and this in fact is is effective at reducing the spread of a pathogen and of course now we're aware of why that happens and we encourage it and so the irony is that you know we are called upon to surrender some of our most deep-seated propensities, which is to interact socially. If I could go on just one more digression just for a moment, because it's, an, yeah, yeah, sure. you know, it's a related idea, which is that, you know, I have this, this, this sort of summary sentence that I use to summarize a set of ideas, which is that, you know, there are all these benefits of us living socially and, and, um, and, and having one of which is the capacity to engage in social learning so any, most all animals or virtually all animals can learn independently. You know, they little fish in the sea can learn that if it swims up to the light, it will find food there. That's called independent learning. And some animals can learn socially, which is incredibly efficient. So, you know, you put your hand in the fire and you learn that it burns. That's independent learning. Or I watch you put your hand in the fire and I see uh, that what happened and I gain almost as much knowledge, but I pay none of the price. Right? That's hugely efficient social learning. Or, for example, you find red berries in the forest and you eat them and you die. And I watch you eat the red berries and die. I say, ha, huh, I better not eat red berries. That's incredibly efficient, okay? But we, our species, does something that's even more remarkable than that. We engage in teaching. We, we set out affirmatively to teach each other things, not just to passively observe and through mimicry or other means acquire information by observing others, we affirmatively teach each other things. This is exceedingly rare in the animal kingdom. And it's one of the reasons we have evolved all these other capacities like cooperation and actually in hierarchy too relates to our capacity for teaching and so forth and so on. But the sentence I have about this is that in fact, the spread of germs is the price we pay for the spread of ideas. Like we, we come near each other to benefit from the, the capacity for culture and the spreading of information. But as soon as I approach and develop friendships and teachers and groups and cooperative interactions, now all of a sudden I put myself at risk of a host of things. For example, you could kill me or, or you know, I might be better off living an isolated life or steal from me or whatever. But in particular, I put myself at risk for catching a contagious disease because I'm not living as a solitary animal. So, yeah. So, so this is a very fundamental idea. And, and the irony, and then I'll shut up, the irony is that, ironically, it is the reverse of that that is how we're going to cope with the pandemic. The spread of ideas is the way we're going to combat the spread of germs. Because by sharing information about mask wearing or sharing scientific information that allows us to develop uh, drugs or vaccines, for example, or by pulling books off the shelf that say, in a time of pandemic, this is what you're supposed to do, you know? This is how we yeah. win, in fact. This is what makes our species, one of the things that makes our species so amazing. I don't know whether this is a tangent that, uh, that we wanted to go down, but I'll, I, I'm, I'm very curious to, to, to get your sense of, of, of this. To, to what degree do you think that, uh, the, or what is the historical record, actually, on uh, the following question? How is the uh, memory of the pandemic going to affect the way in which we express our sociality. So you talk about handshaking, for example, uh, in the book. Uh, here in Quebec, uh, we are uh, kissers on both cheeks. Yes. Uh, you know, we, we, uh, 
you know, it's, it's just very common as it is in many European countries uh, to kiss uh, on both cheeks, not just, uh, you know, both uh, people of the same gender and people of, 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 uh, of other genders. Um, now, when you think about it, uh, when you think about it with the 20, with the 2020, uh, the, hind- the 2020 hindsight there, I've just coined a new, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, that's mine by way. Okay. We can, we can, we can whistle by the deck chairs. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that just seems like the, you know, where do, how do I know where that hand has been, you know, in the yes. last five minutes when I shake it or, or, you know, kissing yeah. on both cheeks, uh, you know, how do I know that the person isn't going to all of a sudden cough or sneeze? as, uh-huh. as he or she is leaning in now uh they're, they're pleasant ways of but you know uh, we, we've tra- we've all traveled to asian countries where where people bow to one another to express the same thing that we express through handshaking or kissing on both cheeks do you do you foresee or is there any evidence from past uh sort of pandemics to think that this will have a lasting effect on the way in which we engage in uh some of the sort of lubricating of social life well i think there's nothing i mean uh, as you point out, there are other societies which, you know, have like different sorts of greetings, you know, like the namaste greeting, you know, when you put your hands together and kind of press against your chest and uh, bowing and so on. So handshaking is not universal. So there's absolutely no reason to imagine that we can't get rid of it. And we might get rid of it. I don't, I think it's a distinct possibility. I mean, the, the toy example I use for this, of course, is spittoons. So at the turn of the last century, you know, in the 1900s, Tuberculosis uh, was an ascendant problem in many cities in the United States, and there was a lot of movements to get people to stop spitting in public, including in little, you know, copper buckets, little spittoons, brass buckets, and that were in all the restaurants. And when the 1918 Spanish flu, so-called Spanish flu, hit, uh, that those efforts really took off. Like, let us, you know, we're going to stop spitting, you know, and we're going to get rid of the spittoons. And after the threat was gone. The spittoons did not come back. You know, there were no spittoons in the restaurants in the 30s and 40s, and nor did anyone miss them. I mean, you and I have grown up, and we've not gone into a restaurant and said, it's really unfortunate there isn't a spittoon here. Uh, This was lost. So it's possible that um, there will be such changes, for example, with respect to handshaking or other aspects of our culture that are are transformed. But the broader question that I think you asked was, was whether what what happens to collective memory in this regard, and this is a subtle and difficult question because on the one hand, we do have tremendous collective memory about these deadly pandemics. You know, there are countless books and esoteric knowledge among experts. You know, whether it's the head of the CDC or all the epidemiologists in the CDC or public health experts that in Canada or elsewhere, there's a lot of scientific expertise or medical historians. There, there are books. I mean, you know, it's not like everyone has read them, but there are books in libraries about these pandemics. So the knowledge exists. But on the other hand, it isn't part of our collective memory in the sense that, you know, I don't remember ever having been in a plague before, and probably none of you do unless you had very specialized experience. So it's not part of our lived experience. On the other hand, again, Plagues, you know, are in the Bible, you know, they're, they're in, in Shakespeare, they're in, in the beginning of the Iliad, which is where I get the Apollo's Arrow title from. The Iliad opens with a plague. Uh, and this is one of the canonical stories of the, the canonical story of the Western canon. It is, you know, a key story of the Western canon. And, um, and so, so plagues are a part of our conversation. It's just that in some sense, everyone is always shocked and surprised when it happens to them. And we too, like everyone else who's faced this calamity, is shocked and surprised. And, and I guess what I'm trying to say is we shouldn't have been, nor should we be. 
Yeah. Well, we end up having short memories. I mean, one of the obstacles you mentioned in your book, um, you say um, there is increasing evidence that the Chinese and Russian governments have a longstanding and ongoing program in place to undermine Americans' confidence in science and scientists and formal analyses of a network of interactions among 100 million people on Facebook show that users spreading falsehoods, uh, for instance, about the risks of vaccination, are often better able to occupy positions of structural power in the network. Uh, And you go on. So, I mean, how do you fight against that? Because I've definitely seen when people people post anti-vax stuff on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, it just gets shared like crazy. Yes. And I usually can't, I, and when, I, when I look at the people that are sharing it and I look at the people who are liking it, very often they have very sketchy looking accounts that don't look real at all. Uh, and I'm, I just wonder, like, how do you fight that? Well, I mean, f- from the, from the, from the uh, point of view of uh, Russian or Chinese trolls or bot accounts, I think the, there are ways in which these platforms can deploy better and better tools to clean up you know, clean up their playground. Uh, the more difficult challenge is how to stop the humans, actual humans, once exposed to this information from sharing it. And part of the problem, of course, is that is that lies are delicious, right? I mean, the truth is often very boring. Uh, it's almost in the intrinsic nature of things that are made-up stories that they're more interesting, you know? And so people <laughs> people spread them, you know? And, uh, and so that is a more difficult challenge, uh, how to counteract that, you know, very fundamental and innate, uh, human tendency. So, yeah. um, so I, you know, I don't have an easy answer to that question. Uh, but I, but, but you're right to highlight the, the, the problem. And, and, and honestly, our adversaries around the world are, are taking advantage of, of, um, of this to cause trouble. I mean, this didn't start with a pandemic. I mean, I should emphasize the, 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 the abundant evidence now that the Russians have been, uh, for example, supporting the National Rifle Association in the United States, they, they want Americans well-armed so that we can kill each other, right? That, that is a problem in our society. Yeah. I mean, regardless of your position on the private ownership of weapons and what is and is not a responsible way to have that, uh, it's clear our enemies are not eager to, I mean, the Russians were trying to get us to own more weapons and it wasn't because they wanted us to be better armed to defend ourselves against the Russians. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Or... Another example for this would be race relations. Many of our adversaries are very eager to foment racial discord in our society and, and have been to some extent successful. And, you know, in many ways, our society, the United States, south of Canada, you know, the, the, you guys are living above, I heard the joke, you're living above the crack house now. But anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, our society south of the border um, actually is a miracle in terms of race relations in our society, not just because we elected President Obama, which is very uncommon, you know, uh, compared to other societies. You don't have other rich democracies that have elected members of minority groups to their principal positions of power, but because the whole American project has progressively been broadening the vision of liberty and, 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 and inclusion and so on. And so, you know, I, obviously we're not perfect and we, we have a lot, you know, more work to do. And I'm extremely mindful and enraged by, you know, uh, police brutality and especially if it's racialized. Um, but, but, you know, we, uh, the, the whole project is in the direction of saying anyone can be an American. 
if you go to Switzerland, not anyone can be a Swiss, or Japan, not anyone can be Japanese. Uh, you, you, you go to Greece, a country which I admire and like, you know, until recently they had your religion on your identity papers. There wasn't a wow. state, you know, I mean, and uh, wow, we say, but I mean, just look around the world, you know, or, you know, there's not been a Pakistani prime minister in England, uh, you know, or, in, or an Algerian prime minister in France, you know, uh, so... So actually, America's pretty good on that metric. And, but our enemies don't want us to feel that way, right? So they foment all of these things. And so COVID has provided another example, another opportunity to, and it's been ruthlessly exploited, you know, divisions around mask wearing or, or business closures or, or vaccination and all of these things. And I've had to deal with, I'm, I'm utterly convinced that my Twitter account, uh, that I've been, been targeted for, and I've talked to some other people about this, targeted for trolling they have two objectives. One is to get me to waste my time so that instead of my trying to being able to help people, you know, by giving basic epidemiology or otherwise provide a public service, as I usually try to do on Twitter, they want me to waste my time having stupid arguments with random, you know, no-name accounts. And second, they, um, they're they very interested in, in not only in distracting me, but in also in, 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 uh, in, in getting me to, uh, to like, you know, uh, to, to uh, contribute to a kind of uh, adverse discussion about these topics. Instead of trying to be very pragmatic, they're trying to, you know, provoke me to be, uh, you know, doctrinaire. And anyway, so, you know, these are, and I know other experts are also have been subject to these types of attacks, you know, targeted attacks by foreign powers. So, so this is a problem, in fact. It's not just we're, we're gullible. American people are gullible. And people are naturally gullible. And uh, we have a number of adversaries who are seeking to exploit that uh, during this time when we need to work together and trust, you know, and work, work with truth. Yeah. You, you said that if, if America was a, was a student in your class, you'd give it an F in terms of its treatment. It's uh, so far how it's dealt with COVID. Why would you give America an F? Well, look, I think from the moment this virus got loose, and I don't know if the Chinese could have contained it early on, um, if they'd gotten really lucky and had acted very swiftly, they might have been able to contain it. But I think it would have required, I don't even know if that would have been possible. But from the moment the virus was widely loose in Wuhan and uh, it was, I mean, to me, it was obvious, and I was on record with this, that it, at the end of January, this would be a world, serious worldwide pandemic. I knew this, and all the experts I know knew this. So the moment the virus is loose and has affected, you know, a few hundred thousand people in Wuhan, there was no stopping it. It was going to become a serious, you know, worldwide uh, pandemic. And, um, and so from that moment forward, the question was, how could we limit the damage in the United States? It was clear that a lot of people were going to die. Back in March, I thought at least 35,000 were going to die. And I said, look, 100,000 or several hundred thousand could die. Uh, of course, many more than that have died. And it was also pretty clear in the United States I'm talking about now. And it was clear that there'd be serious economic effects. But you see, we could have done a vastly better job. So let me just take a digression and, and see if I can explain why. I started studying this in the middle of January with some Chinese colleagues, we were using big data techniques to track human mobility patterns in China and forecast the, the course of the epidemic there using such data. And, and as a result of that, I was paying a lot of attention to what was happening in China. And on, on January the 24th, the Chinese promulgated rules 
requiring 930 million people to be in home confinement. So the Chinese put a, nearly a billion people under like house arrest. I mean, not exactly, but how, they said, you got to stay at home beginning January the 24th. So in their view, the enemy they were facing in the form of the virus was so powerful that they basically detonated a social nuclear weapon to stop it. And that really got my attention. You know, by January 25th, I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, you know, <laughs> whoa, you know, something serious is happening over there. You know, it's like that scene in Star Wars when uh, I think is it Alderaan is destroyed by the, you know, it's vaporized the whole planet and they feel the disturbance in the force. You know, it's like, you know, you know, a billion people's lives were eliminated on that planet when it was destroyed by, I forgot which, you know, the empire or whatever. But anyway, you guys aren't laughing, so you may not catch my illusions. But, uh, <laughs> no, I remember. You, you yeah. know what I'm talking about. All right. Well, anyway. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So I'm like, oh, a billion people on this planet were just told to stay home <laughs> indefinitely. You know, that got my attention. And then, so, and I, I was looking around and I couldn't understand why Americans weren't getting prepared. You weren't hearing anything from the White House. There was no... Parents, you know, no public announcements, you know, let's get ready for this virus. And in retrospect, we know, nor was there any behind the scenes preparation. I mean, the the CDC experts knew this, Tony Fauci knew this, but there there was no mobilization to prepare PPE. There was no mobilization to get uh, testing widely distributed. There was no preparing the American people, none of this. In fact, in Canada, it was similar, frankly. And then and then it hit Italy, okay? Then Italy collapses in February. And I'm like, okay, now everyone's going to pay attention. You know, like this is a rich Western, you know, European democracy. And uh, and still no one was paying any attention. And so honestly, when when New York, uh, you know, crashed on, 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 March the th- on March the 3rd, both the governor of New York and the mayor of New York City were so nonchalant, I couldn't believe it. Uh, there was this famous moment when um, Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, is in like a subway car telling New Yorkers to go about their business. And I understand not wanting to get people panicked, but to encourage people to go about their business with this deadly virus it was just it was irresponsible. So, so F, yes, I would give our public response an F. You have a better grade you want to give us? Uh, no, no, no. No, not at all. So yeah, Daniel? yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm thinking back to the Canadian uh, reaction. So you know, I was in New York in late February, and then a week later, I traveled all the way across the country to Victoria, British Columbia. Uh-huh. Uh, I got back to Montreal. I think I'm not mistaken in saying that I got back on the eighth. And at that point, Theresa Tam, who is Canada's uh, Anthony Fauci, she is the uh, the, the federal uh, uh-huh. director of, of public health said that the risk uh, to Canadians was still very low. I had no question. Uh, there was no doubt in my mind that I was going to go to New York at the end of February. It didn't seem like anybody was saying that they should consider changing their travel plans. I did think a little bit about going to Victoria uh, a week later. Um, three days after I got back, we basically shut down the country. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I, I've, there's got to be an explanation other than, so I actually teach a course at McGill on the ethics and law of COVID, uh-huh. uh, where every week we look at some different, a different issue. And we started off the, the class having the students read excerpts from the painstaking, I don't know if you've ever seen it, the painstaking report that was written for the federal government uh, by a blue ribbon panel after the SARS epidemic. Oh, yes. Uh, I, I tried to get a copy of that report. I, I, will, I, will, I will send it to you. It's like uh, 
Oh my God, it would be a magnificent gift. You, you it's like a ten volume set, right? But well, it's, well, like, it's not quite ten volumes, but it is painstaking. Can it, I it, get? How can I get a copy of that? I would love that. I couldn't. I find will. It. I will. Do you have you? Uh, I will send it to you by email. Okay, great. I'll have it printed it's, up for myself. It's called Learning from SARS. Yes. Uh, it was written so in two whatever it was two thousand and uh, I'm bad on dates three, three or two thousand and four, and it's like a, a game plan. You know, yes. you hand this to the government, and you say, okay, this is how you. Get yourself ready for the, for, you know, we, we dodged a bullet because as you explained extremely well in the book, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the virus that caused SARS was in a way too deadly to be efficient, um, you know. And, but had it was some all- other, and had some other properties, and, but, and Canada was hard hit, relatively speaking. Yes. And but, you know, yeah, they on. say that it's only a matter of time before a virus that has just the right sweet that hits yeah. just the right sweet spot between lethality and transmissibility, um, you know, is going to hit. And he- here's your blueprint. Here's your playbook. Um, and you know, three days before the, uh, the 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 country got shut down, the woman who essentially her position was created as a result of that playbook is telling us. Um, the, the the risk of Canadians is is uh, is 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 very is very low. Yes. Something other, something else has to be at work here. You know, you were talking about fear. You're talking about denial. I wonder whether human beings are just capable of you know reckoning with something that big looming. It's you know, it's one thing if you have a, a you know a little dog yapping at you, you can sort of take that in. But if something that is, as it were, almost bigger than your field of vision. Is before you, and you know in advance that it's just going to overwhelm you. Um, you know the, the 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 psychological pressures towards denial just seem like well, it's like all it's like all the all the people I often wondered, you know, with Pompeii, you know, all the people that were stuck in Pompeii, you know, the the the, the volcano was erupting and rumbling for quite a while, and many people did evacuate the city, but many did not. <laughs> you know, what were they thinking? Um, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. Well, no, maybe I, mean, I cut Daniel off. No, no, just to say that we did know, you know, I mean, it could be that uh, subsequently, I mean, the advantage that we have over you is that our national leader was not a sort of science denying, uh, yes. uh, you know, so, but, you know, in terms of the, 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 the initial reaction, we were just as caught with our collective pants down as the United States. And indeed, I think as, as most, uh, you know, the, the European countries uh, as well. And, you know, given the fact, especially in Canada, that we did have this near-death experience just, you know, within living, I mean, within close living memory, I, I'm still at a loss for a good explanation of how we could have been as clueless. That's a very good counterexample on the within living memory thing, because the Canadians actually was breathlessly reported. They took it seriously. They were worried. There was panic. Oh, I mean, yeah. They were worried. I Yes, you're right. And there were lots of adults who were alive then. So why were the Canadians surprised in 2019? That is a very good question. To the point uh, of three days before the yes. country was shut down, uh, yes. being told that there was no serious uh, danger. Yes. To- and they'd already seen Lombardy collapse, right? I mean, yeah. it wasn't just the Chinese, you know, who had locked down their country. And nothing had happened in China as a result of that. But well, other places were, you know, like, so what were they thinking? I, I, I don't know. That's a really yeah. good question. I don't have the answer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think to some extent it's a cultural thing. Like if you watch that, that wonderful series, I think it's on HBO the, or Netflix Chernobyl. Oh, I love it. I know. It's, Craig it's Mason. It's so fantastic. Yeah, Craig Mason. And, you know, there's, there's so many fantastic scenes in there, but one of my favorites is those miners. Yes. 
you know, and they're, and they're going in and they know full well, they're going into this hot, hot thing. They're getting, they're stripping down naked, going in shifts to go in and they know this needs to be done. They're not afraid of their superiors. The guy goes right up. He goes, you want to shoot me? Like, you know, like um, and, but they know that they're doing this for the common good and they know that they're probably going to die as a result of it. And, many- and yet they just have this, this fatalism. You know, I think we just don't, uh, no. most of us, you know, because we've been so infected, you know, I, I kept thinking when I would hear a lot of these, like these leaders talk, you know, I mean, Trump was only the worst of them, but he was definitely not the only one that, um, you know, Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Bright-Sided, where she talks about the toxic positivity and how it's like positive thinking, how it's like permeated uh, so much of American life and then through American life, the world. And, you know, we always thought that, you know, an Oprah presidency would be the culmination of like this whole trend of positive thinking. But turns out Trump was actually the culmination of <laughs> of that, right? Like, because he's just got this, and you can even see it with the denying the election results. Yeah. It's this totally kind of like you just you just manifest, you know, only believe, yeah. only believe, all things are possible. You know, it's uh, it's a it's a very it's kind of the opposite of a sort of a fatalism, you know. But I don't know, Daniel. I don't know if it's like if it's inherent to human nature or if it's. Uh, if you have a culture that's based on sales and marketing and optimism, uh, well, I think no, it's, it's not it's, just it's, that it's, it's the belief which is ascendant on the far right and on the far left that reality can be so-called socially constructed, you know, that, that actually there, that there's no objective reality uh, that, um, you know, that because we perceive it through our imperfect senses, it is in fact not there. Uh, which is not correct in my view. And, uh, and furthermore, that therefore our words and our feelings can dictate the, our reality, which is also not true in my opinion. Uh, there's, a, there's a kernel of an idea there, a deep philosophical idea, which I think is really interesting and important and true in a certain sense that, you know, that our, our words, uh, you know, create the, the, the environment. But uh, the, I deny or reject the claim that as a result of that, there isn't really an out there out there. The virus, regardless of what we say about it, exists. And, and, I, and anyway, I'm speaking too much, but go on. Yeah, no, that, that's one of the, my favorite passages in the whole book. It's where you say like, uh, you know, the, the virus is real and it does not care how we see it or what we say about it. Uh, reality matters. Uh, it basically, like, yeah, that's just a wonderful line. Um, like, there, there is something that intrigued me. I don't know. If, can I can I jump in and ask a question? Yeah, yeah. So there's one that, towards the end of the book. Something that um, you know. So I teach this class, and and you know, I know a little bit about public health because I was uh, the director of Quebec's public health ethics committee for a number of years. Oh, wow. So I know a little bit about the science. But um, uh, you know, the students want to know. You know, so we just had news about the vaccine and, uh, you know, is, does this mean that we can, like on whatever, November 14th, 2020, I'll be able to, you know, go to the theater or something, you know. Uh, and I say, well, it's not, it's, you know, it's, that's not usually the way, the way it ends. There's a, there's a line that I should have, I should have put a little sticky in the book to quote you back to yourself where you say at some level, the pandemic will end when we've decided, when we've decided that it's ended. Um, and, you know, uh, it, we probably won't reemerge for a while into a, 
an environment of zero risk, right? Of uh, everything in terms of risk being exactly as it was uh, before. This pa- this this pathogen is going to hang around, and um, you know the, the 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 vaccine will 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 lower the level of risk, but it won't eliminate it completely, right? No. Uh, I wonder if you say could say more about that about the, like the you know how in the past or how, given the fact that we now have prospective candidate vaccines that might be rolled out very soon, you see that social decision as occurring. Well, there, there, you're, there's, again, so much in, in that. Uh, the first issue, it has to do with the, just the mechanics of what's going to happen. So before we talk about the sort of social end as compared to the biological end, let's briefly discuss the the biological end that's embedded in your question. And that biological end is the so-called herd immunity milestone. So herd immunity is the idea that a population can be immune to a pathogen, even if not everyone within it is individually immune. For example, if you vaccinate 96% of people for measles, even if one of the 4% who's not immune gets measles, they can't start an epidemic because they don't interact with anyone who's, who's susceptible. Now, you should have the intuition that that percentage should have something to do with how infectious the disease is. Measles is the most infectious disease known. So you have to have a very large fraction of people immunized if you want to tamp down on epidemics. Conversely, something like the seasonal flu has a, has a intrinsic infectiousness, a so-called R0 of about 1.5. Measles R0 is about, about 18 or 16, uh, such that you only need to vaccinate about 30% of the people to have herd immunity. In the case of uh, SARS-CoV-2, the R0 is 3. Technically, that means that 66% of the population needs to be vaccinated or acquire immunity before you have herd immunity, naturally acquire immunity before you have herd immunity. But for a variety of network science reasons, the number is a little lower, let's mm. say about 50%. So, so basically, if the, if the disease were spreading naturally among us, uh, once 50% of the people got infected, the virus would have a very hard time it could, it, the, the, the epidemic potential of the virus would have been squashed. Now, if we, uh, right now, as we said, we've, we've invented these vaccines, but they're not going to be instantly available. It's going to take a while to manufacture and distribute them and persuade people to take them. Let's say about a year from now, we'll, we'll have been able to vaccinate 50% of the people. But meanwhile, the germ is still spreading. In the United States, about 12% of Americans have been infected. And as I said, our target, let's say, is 50%. So one way or the other, I think in 2022, uh, we'll reach this herd immunity threshold, wherein either naturally or artificially, half the population are now immune to the virus. And that threshold, that herd immunity milestone, will mark the one biological end of the epidemic. The virus will still be there. It, could, it will, in fact, still be infecting some people and continue to do so, but the kind of epidemic force of the of the virus of the epidemic will be over, and uh, so that's one biological end. And there are other bio- potential ways this pandemic ends, biologically speaking. But socially, as you're pointing out, it depends on you know how we also depends on how we define the virus and and how we think about what it means to live with the virus. And there are many other conditions that we've sort of normalized you know, that do kill us. Like, for example, you know, HIV is continuing to spread in our population, but now we have treatments for it that have converted this chronic illness to a, have converted this previously deadly infection to now a chronic illness. And, and we see HIV differently than we did then for a variety of reasons than when it first entered the human population. And, and that's a part what I mean by the social definition of an end. 
and 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 I discuss that, of course, in in Apollo's Arrow. Yeah, you you discuss this one kind of sort of like uh, cheat uh, move or like a like a fast forward move in the book, which I found absolutely fascinating. Where you say that, uh, and this is sort of you, you know, Nicholas Christakis, the sociologist who co-wrote Connected here, you know, like uh, where you talk about networks and how uh, one of the ways that you can get to herd immunity faster, like getting, you know, maybe even like down around 40% or something like that, is if you, after you've dealt with all the frontline workers, all the medical Uh, personnel and things like that, if you identify people who are uh, popular, people who have a lot of interactions, so maybe like, you know, look at people who you know, have, have like, you know, you have a, when you're doing triage and figuring out who needs to get vaccinated, if you vaccinate these people that have a lot of interactions that can sort of get you up to herd immunity faster. Yeah. This is, you know, when we're dealing with the, the problem of, of, of people who are not, you know, who are vac- vaccine hesitant or straight up anti-vaxxer, this may prove to be really, really central to the public health strategy. Well, we're, my group is not the first to suggest this. This is an old idea, this sort of network-based vaccination uh, or, or, or immunization. I think my group is the first to have actually done field experiments of these ideas. We, we published the first paper on this in 2015 in The Lancet, showing that um, you, you could take advantage of network structure to, to have this effect. Let me, for your listeners, let me cultivate an intuition about this. So the idea is that you, people, the, the, the population of human beings in a city or in a nation or in a village or whatever is not interacting uniformly. Not everyone is connected to everyone else. There's network structure. Some people have many connections. Some have very few. Some, in fact, might have no connections. And you should have the intuition at least about those individuals who have no connections that there'd be no reason to vaccinate them. It would be a waste of vaccine to give it to them because they can't get the, va- the germ from anyone. They don't interact with anyone. They're hermits up in a mountain. Nor if they get it, could they spread it to anyone because they don't interact with anyone. So that, that so-called boundary condition, that, that sort of edge, that, that, that case should cultivate an intuition in the listener that hmm, maybe the number of connections people have is relevant to their utility as vaccine candidates. And in fact, the answer is, another sort of toy example of this might be if you were a bioterrorist and you were trying to create an outbreak in, you know, Toronto, who should you infect? You know, should you infect a very unpopular person, a a person that stays at home all the time and doesn't interact very much with anyone, or some social butterfly? And you should have the intuition that, oh my goodness, a social butterfly is really going to spread the disease. And therefore, conversely, you should have the intuition that if we were able to vaccinate these popular people, that would more effectively stop the spread of a pathogen. Now, this has been shown mathematically, and my laboratory has done some experiments to show that this can actually be done in real-life settings, not with vaccination, but with other kinds of interventions. And so... Even with ideas, yes, right? Yes. I, I can't remember if it's, if it's in Connected or Blueprint where you show how um, you know, ideas about, uh, about like, you know, public health issues, you know, like that if you can get to particular, you know, what Malcolm Gladwell calls like mavens or connectors, if you can get to those people, you can actually spread out some useful piece of knowledge very efficiently to a lot of people. Yes. And, uh, you know, I I mean, that's obviously something I've been thinking a lot about. Um, You know, 
I actually need to stop. I'm utterly yeah. exhausted from my day. My yeah. brain is fried. <laughs> no problem at all. Uh, and I'm trying to think of what I can finish with. And maybe I'll just finish. Well, with- just maybe just finish finish with telling us how does America turn that F into into an an A or at least a B plus. Um. Well, I mean, I think with the new administration, we're going to have a, a kind of reset, and I think we're going to have hopefully better public health messaging, more more education of the public, more call to common purpose. We're going to need to wear masks. I mean, in other words, someone needs to tell us you can't have everything. If you want, if you want your schools open and your businesses open, then unfortunately you're going to have to wear masks, and you're going to have to, you know, be tested, and you're going to have to keep physical distancing and, and avoid other unnecessary gatherings. And so I think if we do those things, if we, if we are able to uh, roll out better testing, have better masking, uh, implement a variety of other slightly less odious uh, so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions, uh, and have better messaging, I think we can do better and, uh, and blunt a little bit the force of this epidemic. And I think, if anything, the existence of these vaccines in an ideal world should make it easier because we can tell people, look, the end is on the horizon. Uh, you know, we are going to eventually be able to vaccinate everybody, which is amazing. Uh, but, you know, we have to, we have to you know, to behave uh, between now and then. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. I know you've had an incredibly long day. And by the way, I posted and, uh, before you uh, log out, you may want to look at the chat because I just posted that uh, uh, learning from SARS, uh, the link to that report. Yeah. I've already copied it and downloaded it on my computer. <laughs> Terrific. Terrific. <laughs> all right. Have a great night, guys. Thank you all so and, much. And uh, thanks for shaving for us, Nicholas. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for having me. <laughs> all right. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Bye.